The vibration of change, that magical place where life shifts from struggle to ease, from stagnation to forward movement, from old ways of being to new ways of becoming. Yes, it can seem rather elusive to get there, but when you are in it, you feel it down to your very core, and it can positively affect everything in your life, from your relationships to your health and well-being, from your career path to your abundance, from the quality of your inner connection to the fullness of your self-expression. Here on The Christine Uptrich Show, we explore ways to get into that vibration of change with experts in the fields of consciousness, psychology, spirituality, health, healing, and science. Are you ready to step into your vibration of change? Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Christine Uptrich Show here on 1150 AM KKNW in the Seattle area, transformationtalkradio.com on the internet all over the world. And, of course, Facebook Live on my professional page. Um, you may hear my cat roaring in the background. I think she's got spring fever. It's gorgeous outside here in Seattle. Um, and so I want to say hello to the, my fellow Seattleites. We're probably enjoying the weather. <laughs> Benny Mathers. Hey, Benny. <laughs> <laughs> I need to be let out, too, Christine. Can you open the door for me? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, you get to get it left, let out at noon, Benny. Yeah, you know, that's like true. In, I guess just that. about an hour. Yeah, so. I can hold you'll, it together. You'll be free. Yeah, I'll hold it together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and she's busy playing in the. Oh my goodness, she's never done this before. Oh, the joys of live radio. We've got like the perfect storm today, you know, because our, our our guest is. Um, was confused about the time. Well, I think animals Animal. definitely feel it out because if you haven't known or heard or read about it, in Houston there's a loose tiger and they still can't find it. So maybe... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if you read the report. Yeah, they still <laughs> can't find I know. It's bizarre down there, but it, it's true. So maybe there's a little bit of a, an attachment there. Oh, my goodness. Your kitty needs to get out is. to help the other kitty. <laughs> okay. Oh, oh, she's got something dangerous here. Hold on, folks. Oh, standing um, by. Sorry. <laughs> This oh is. My I hope it's not. Uh, you turn oh the camera around. Right, I know this is fantastic. <laughs> Everybody who is watching on the YouTube channel at the Christine Up Church Show, we are getting the play-by-play. -play. Oh, oh, Christine's back. Never mind. We didn't get that much. She, she had discovered a Q-tip. Oh my oh, goodness. Oh, good, good mom. Way to save her. Anyway, um, <laughs> welcome good. everybody to live radio and Facebook Live. Um. I, I do want to mention before we uh, we get our guest on, um, I am going to be a teacher at the Academy of Divine Knowledge. It's an online uh, subscription-based uh, great resource. It's going to have information about medicine, health, well-being, spirituality, psychology, UFOs, you, you name it, it's going to be on there and it's uncensored. I'm really excited about that. And we will put the link on the Facebook live page. Maybe um, you can do that, Kyle, for us. Um, anyway, it's, uh, it, it's something that I'm going to be teaching. I'm going to be teaching vibration of change. We talk about that at the beginning of every single show. And yet, what is it? And how do you get into it? We often think about change as something that we have to force or push or coordinate in various ways. And yes, we have to take action, but there's one aspect of manifestation that doesn't get talked about very often that is essential. And that is what you have to do to get into the vibration change. I'm going to be teaching about that. It's going to start in June, on June 11th, which happens to be my mother's birthday, which is just perfect. Um, I'm also going to be teaching about a couple of other things, and you're going to have access to that censored interview that caused us all problems on YouTube, as well as on, um, you know, for KKNW, you guys got, <laughs> you got punished for a week we got, as well. We got thrown in the pokey. I know, I know, and there's no good reason for it, and so it's going to be on an uncensored platform. Anyway, uh, I hope that you will join me and many other amazing teachers on the Academy of Divine Knowledge. So, Olivia, how are we doing with our guest? Yeah, uh, you know, I also just put up that link for the Academy of the Divine Knowledge, and I have your guest coming in now, so I'm going to let him Great. in, and okay. we should be good to go. 
Okay. So they can find it on Transformation Talk Radio Facebook page. Is that right? Uh, yes, I'm putting it up on, on screen on the video and I will add it to the to the um, live video link as well. Okay. Okay, great. So um, it sounds like we've got our guests coming in and um, I'm excited about our conversation today because, you know, I think that we hear narratives on a regular basis and the words themselves can sound really good when in fact there is greed corruption, um, and perhaps other evil motivations behind them. So how do we learn to, whether we should trust or not? How do we look at the motivations, in particular, behind corporations that seem to be woke and saying the right things? Are they really looking out for our best interests? Do we have our guest here now? Olivia? Yeah, actually, he's all set. He's up there. Okay, great. Oh, I don't see him oh, yet. Oh, sorry. Yep, he's ready. All right. I'm so grateful he's here. And he has an amazing background. Uh, Joel Bacon is a former Rhodes Scholar and clerk to the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. Really amazing. A law professor at the University of British Columbia. He's probably having sunshine today, too, up there. His recent book and film, The New Corporation, are sequels to his critically acclaimed best-selling book, The Corporation. And the award-winning of the award-winning global hit documentary documentary film it inspired sorry this has been a crazy chaotic start to the show bacon's other work include just words 1997 and childhood under siege back in 2012 as well as numerous scholarly works also a legal consultant media commentator and jazz guitarist bacon lives in vancouver canada with his wife rebecca jenkins i would like to welcome our guest today Joel Bacon. Hi. Hi. So glad to be on. You know, um, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing your name right. Normally, I do a little check before we go live. And uh, yeah. So is that the way you, you pronounce your last name? Well, I, you know, there are different ways people pronounce it. Bacon, Bacon. Um, but the correct pronunciation is Bacon. Um, Bacon. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, very. I I would say ninety nine out of a hundred don't get that right the first time. So okay. <laughs> you're in good company. I didn't mean to suggest you, you were breakfast meat. You know, <laughs> just yeah. look that way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, I I'm really fascinated by um, the things that you talk about the the conversations that you're having about wokeness, particularly as it relates to corporations. But let's take a step back. Before we get into that, um, one of the things that I have found so perplexing over the last several years is when I start to think in terms of the power that corporations have within the context of politics, lobbying, but also in terms of the law. Can you share with our viewers and listeners about um, the kinds of power that corporations have within the context of the United States as well as Canada? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that over the last 40 years or so, corporate power has has grown immensely. Corporations have become larger. Uh, their scope has become greater. And the legal constraints that we place upon them as democratic citizens through the governments that we elect have become much weaker. Uh, so they're able to act with greater impunity. Uh, they're able to cause more harm. This is, of course, all justified on the basis of certain economic theories that I think increasingly um, are coming into question. You know, the idea that if we just let corporations get as big as they can, get as powerful as they can, have as much freedom as they can, that will be to the benefit of all of us. Um, but I think we're seeing that that uh, is not quite working and a lot of rethinking is going on. Right. I remember hearing years ago that the number one um, goal of any bureaucracy was to continue the bureaucracy. In other words, any bureaucracy, at, you know, even if it's not for profit, its main motivation is to stay alive, stay together, keep going. And that can be a good thing when there are certain positive goals within that bureaucracy. But when we're talking about corporations, they're profit-oriented. Um, how do we balance out capitalism with 
corporate presence? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, I'm not anti-market. I'm not even really anti-corporation. Um, what I am is pro-democracy. And I think that how we have decided as societies, at least in countries like the United States and Canada, how we've answered that question is to say, here's how we set things up. We have corporations, we have markets, and we see them as tools. We see them as tools for serving the public good, and we see them as tools for what the people decide are the priorities in terms of how we balance things like corporate profits against uh, against public goods, in terms of how much we let corporations do. Do we let them run our schools or do we leave the, that in public hands? In terms of the degree to which they can influence the democracy, do we allow them to just give as much money as they want to electoral campaigns and influence government as much as they want. So, so the, the, the understanding in democratic societies is that the people are in charge and that they exercise their sovereignty through the governments that they elect and that those governments then decide how to balance those kinds of competing interests and how to use corporations and markets as tools for the public good. Now, what I've just described to you is not at all radical. That's, you know, what the, the founders of the United States, of Canada, of other Western countries had in mind uh, when they were thinking about democracy. Um, private property, markets, corporations all have their place. It's good to have a thriving private sector, but they understood that you needed to balance that against a thriving public sector, against democratic sovereignty, against all that. So what I'm describing is not radical. What is radical is what's happened over the last 40 years, which is that the corporate sector has said, we actually don't like that equation anymore. We just want to have complete power. We don't want to be controlled by democratic governments. We want to be deregulated. We don't want to uh, be limited in terms of what we can do. We want to run schools for profit. We want to run water systems for profit. And so that whole balance has been upended in effect over the last 40 years. Uh, and as a consequence, we're in a situation where democratic governments and democracy has been weakened substantially and corporate power strengthened. Mm -hmm. And I find it fascinating um, through the presidential election process in particular, um, the narrative that got created when talking about giving more power to the people you know, democratic socialism. Oh, socialism is a bad thing. Well, socialism in terms of communism and fascism is a horrible thing. Yeah. And yet combining it with democracy is giving more power to the people, is is creating um, just, just more balance to people's lives. Uh, and yet... It got demonized. Um, what happened with Bernie Sanders two presidential elections in a row here in the United States was kind of shocking to me because he was speaking the truth that I think so many, if they really listened, wanted. And yet they had this fear based label attached to it so that it, you know, people wouldn't vote that direction. Yeah. No, abs absolutely. And and I think, you know, the word socialism is, is a red flag. There's no question. And and partly legitimately so. I mean, you know, you look at uh, communism in in uh, in the People's Republic of China, in the former Soviet Union and what's become of that uh, in North Korea. Um, you know, these are all societies that call themselves socialist. And, and so it, it is definitely a name that has a lot of baggage. But when I'm having this conversation, what I'd like to do is say to people, okay, if you were going to invent a society and you had to attach an ism to it, right? And an ism means this is our fundamental goal. Well, isn't our fundamental goal to serve the social, to serve our collective destiny and our ability to thrive as individuals within it? And so that's all socialism is saying. It's saying we put the social first. What capitalism is saying is that the ultimate end of our society should be to create capital. And that mm. somehow the creation of capital is gonna trickle down and make everybody else's lives better. 
But, you know, that's a kind of strange idea. Why not just say making everybody's lives better is the ultimate goal of society? So we'll call that socialism. And when you attach democracy to that term, I think you have, well, here's another way of looking at it. One of the arguments I make in my book is that our degradation of democracy, I think, is a consequence of the fact that we've separated democracy from the necessary social solidarity we need for it to work. We can't, democracy can't work if people don't have a sense of some commonality, some collective destiny, some relationship to each other, even if they don't know each other. That, that's what democracy depends on. Well, if you have a society where the, the gap between rich and poor is profound, where people feel excluded, you lose that sense of commonality. And if you lose a sense of commonality, you can't have democracy. So my argument is you need to have that social base upon which to build democracy. And if you want to call that social democracy or democratic socialism, use whatever mm -hmm. labels you can. Right. But the idea that you can't have political democracy without a bedrock of some social commonality, some equality, not perfect equality, we're never going to have that, but right. some measure where people don't feel like they're completely left out and excluded. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that, and, and I think what we saw under President Trump and with the insurgency on January the 6th, what we've seen with all of that is a country where we no longer have that common destiny where we have all that division and partisanship, partly because so many have fallen through the cracks. Well, and I see another layer to that, and that is that um, we've got the media as corporate entities. So this, this, this other aspect that's supposed to help control government um, is bought and paid for by corporations. So there are aspects of various things that we are not seeing in mainstream media because it doesn't serve the corporation, which adds another layer of complexity. It's not just politicians get money from the corporations and therefore you know, they, they tend to you know, go towards many policies that the lobbyists want or the corporations want, um, but we've got media that's not keeping the capitalistic society and the government um, in check in terms of speaking truth. So how do we deal with the media being owned by corporate entities? And in, in, in many cases, it's like, I think there's seven different corporations that own all the media in the United States, more or less. I think the first thing that needs to be said in relation to that, and I don't know whether uh, KKNW is owned by a, one of those big corporations or not, but the first thing to be said is that despite the fact that there is a lot of concentrated corporate ownership, there's a lot of great journalism that's going on. There are a lot of great shows like yours that really raise these difficult questions, including about the corporate uh, media overseers. And, and that's great. My film got made as a result of uh, financing from including some large telecommunication companies. So, wow. you know, it, it, yeah. my book is published by Penguin Random House, which is a huge uh, and much bigger. It just swallowed up Simon & Schuster. So, you know, it's a, it's a mega publisher. So, so the first thing to say is that somehow, despite corporate ownership of most media and concentrated ownership, as you point out, seven companies owning everything, there still is good journalism going on. The New York Times, the Washington Post have done, you know, some a really admirable job in some ways. Having said that, you're absolutely right that a lot doesn't get covered. And that is partly because of the business model of corporate media based on advertising. Uh, you know, you can't do an in-depth criticism of Amazon if you're depending on ad revenue uh, from Amazon. You know, so same thing with big pharma. That you big know, pharma most owner. of the ads on on these news programs are pharmaceutical ads. Absolutely. So, so if you go against any narrative associated with um, pharmaceutical drugs or even with the situation with the virus and possible treatments that don't fit into that that very narrow mainstream perspective, it can't be on the mainstream media, um, which means we're not getting access to differences of opinion. We're not getting access to 
um, truth, possible truths, we don't have the opportunity to kind of look within and explore based on, you know, our research. If we can't have access to truth, then, um, you know, okay, even if there are some journalists who are, are reporting aspects of truth, if we don't have the whole spectrum, if we don't have the debate, then we can't make um, the appropriate decision. So it's it's a very dysfunctional state of being at this point. And I, I it seems to be it seems to me that historically, the media was not this corporate controlled. It, it was it was more dispersed in terms of um, in terms of who owned the news various newspapers and and um, the television stations. So it, it it seems like it's a little broken right now. And I feel like. We have to depend on these alternative shows in order to get the full spectrum of news. It's very broken. There's no question about it. And you're absolutely right that one of the, I talked about the last 40 years of, of sort of deregulation of corporations becoming increasingly free of legal constraints. Well, some of the legal constraints they've become freed of are legal constraints uh, involving concentration, involving monopoly, uh, involving uh, broadcasting, uh, ensuring that there's a full range of views and all of that. So, so partly what's happened is, is that, that deregulation has basically left uh, media conglomerates to do whatever they want, and that's going to be driven by profit, and that's sure. going to lead to the kind of dynamic you're talking about. The other thing that's happened, and this is less relevant to the United States, because in the US, there's never really been um, a kind of uh, public broadcasting system in the way there are uh, in Canada and in European countries and in the United Kingdom with the BBC. You have NPR, but it's a different sure. model. Um, it's uh, it's still private in effect, even though it's, it's, it's called public. Um, yeah. It relies on foundation money and whatnot, not on government transfers. But uh, so one of the things that's happened is that there's been that deregulation. The other thing that's happened is public broadcasters uh, who don't operate on the profit motive and who therefore do have more latitude um, have been restricted. Their budgets have been cut. They've been privatized. All of that's been happening. Um, and, you know, in Canada, we still have a very strong uh, public uh, CBC radio system that works very well. But the CBC television system is driven more by advertising and more the traditional model. So, you know, those are two things that have happened that can be fixed. I mean, we can, you know, try to reverse that, try to come up with better broadcast yeah. policy. But the big elephant in the room of this conversation is social media, is Facebook, is yes. Twitter, is all of that. Right. And they claim not to be broadcasters. That's that's their legal out for saying you can't regulate us at all mm -hmm. because and Netflix, too, because we're not broadcasters. We're just uh -huh. platforms yes. and we're not responsible for our content. So in theory, you know, as you're talking, you're thinking, well, the, the obvious solution to the monopoly of broadcasting is to have this sort of very disaggregated um, system of social media where, where you and I can get on and express our opinion. The right. problem there, though, is that the profit model of companies like Twitter and Facebook is based on getting more eyes for longer periods of time. And that's based often not on the most rational and reasoned forms of discussion. So there's a kind of encouragement of, you know, kind of nasty trolling and mm. untruths and falsehoods and false news. And so you get these problems that we have now that nobody knows where to look for truth. Mm. And, 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 that's, and that's become crucial. And what's, what I find so interesting with Facebook and YouTube um, and Google, because, you know, they're the search engine and they also own YouTube is that they've got corporate backers as well. Absolutely. And so things like there, there have been situations where, okay, I'm a former research statistician. I used to design, analyze clinical trials and cancer research, co-authored articles in medical journals. I know how to read medical journals. I know what makes a good study, what makes a lousy study. Um, tried to post something on Facebook relating to a certain vitamin and influenza had five different studies that I looked into that were very yeah. well done. They threatened to suspend my account yeah. just yeah. posting that link. Yeah. And it's like, 
So even if it's not the 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 negative stuff, even if it's not fake news, yeah, it's controlled. And and so it's just it's just these crazy times where some of the fake stuff gets through because it's you know it creates this drama that gets more it gets clicks more and views yeah. and addiction you know addictive yeah. tendencies with it. And then there's there's absolute you know newsworthy truths that don't get posted. It's just crazy. Look, I mean, what has happened is we've handed over the curating of knowledge to for-profit entities that have no responsibilities under our constitutional guarantees of freedom of expression because they are private entities because they're corporations they are not bound by the constitution in the way governments are yet they have governmental power in terms of deciding what gets said and what doesn't i'll give you a very uh disturbing real life example and that is that my film which is very reasoned has you know experts and and i'm a law professor like you know uh -huh. it's it's yeah. it's a it's a rational reason documentary with a point of view um we tried to buy advertising on twitter and we were refused mm -hmm. because the content of the film was inappropriate and too political so um so not unlike you're getting suspended yeah. from Facebook, uh, we've basically, you know, been been canceled, at least in terms of trying to buy uh, buy advertising on Twitter um, mm -hmm. for for the content of of the film, um, yeah. and that, you know, and which includes criticism so of social media. So, yeah, right. Right. Yeah. And. Yeah, so so that is, indeed is is broken. Um, and one of the things that I find so fascinating that you talk about is the corporation as an individual. Can you share with our viewers and listeners a little bit more about how that came about and what its consequences are? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, back in the um, 19th century, uh, there was a problem in the United States and England and other industrializing countries. And that is there was this incredible ability to create things on scale and railroads were the things that were being created. But there wasn't a business form that allowed for uh, millions or tens of thousands of people to collectively own something and contribute their money to it. And so that's the birth of the modern corporation. And the idea was uh, that what we'll do is we'll break up ownership from management. So we'll say that anybody, you know, can put in a little bit of money or a lot of money and, and can own this company, but it'll be managed by 10 or 12 people. Instead of the owners and the managers being the same people, we break that up. The problem then is that you have no actor because now all the owners are anonymous and they don't want to put their money in if they're going to end up liable if things go wrong. So the magic that lawyers did at the time was to say, well, let's just call that thing we created a person. Because then, like you and me, it can have rights and obligations and operate in the legal system. Because if you're not a person, you can't operate in the legal system. You oh, that's fascinating. Say right. that again. Say that again. <laughs> <laughs> so so the idea is you create this collectivity in order to have the the ability to draw large and small sums of money from millions of people but now you've got this big unwieldy thing then you need some entity that can operate in the legal system and because law since roman times only recognizes people individuals as capable of holding rights, you pull the, the, the rabbit out of the hat and you say, voila, this big collective entity we've created is one person. So General Motors can now be treated as a person when it enters a contract with a supplier or it enters a contract with uh, a worker or a union or whatever. So, so that is what personhood's about. Now, the tricky thing that happens in the United States in the 1880s is the Supreme Court in the United States says, well, if those things are persons, then they should have the same rights under the Constitution that all people have. And so we're going to give them uh, those rights. 
And we're going to let them use those rights to challenge governments who are trying to regulate them. Mm -hmm. So a few consequences of that. One of them is Citizens United, which a lot of people know about. A case of your Supreme Court, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago now, don't have it in my head, where the court decides that um, restrictions on corporations providing funding to candidates are a violation of those corporations' free speech because those corporations are persons. So the current system of a kind of wild west where corporations can give as much money as they want to candidates is very much a result of that personhood idea. So that's one consequence. The other consequence of it is that if you try to regulate Facebook or Twitter, for example, and tell them what they can or can't do, they say, we are persons and we have freedom of speech and you can't restrict our speech. So you've got these huge mega companies determining what we can say and what we can't. And the strange irony is they are treated as holders of free speech rights rather than respecters of free speech rights. And that's that's what we're living in today. Yeah, that's crazy. It is (laughs) absolutely crazy. So in like when thinking about a corporation as a person, and I'm, you know, I know we can't generalize completely because there's a wide variety of corporations. What are some of the attributes of that person? Right. And where do the dangers lie? Yeah. So, I mean, in the first book and film, I I was originally a psychology student. That's why I did my undergraduate. And uh-huh. when I was um, at law school uh, and I was sitting in the corporate law class and I learned what I just told you about how corporations are persons, um, I immediately thought, well, that's interesting. What would their personality be? You know, how would we look at it? And so the the second thing you learn in corporate law after learning that corporations are persons The second thing you learn is what's called the best interests of the corporation principle. And what that principle says is that a corporation always has to act in its own self-interest, which is the self-interest of those who constitute it, which is the financial well-being of its shareholders. So a corporation is legally obliged by its very makeup always to put profit above anything else to put its own self-interest above anything else. And I thought, wow, that's when the penny dropped. And I thought, you know, if that were a human being, we would diagnose it as a psychopath because (laughs) that is by definition, a psychopath is somebody who can't care for others and and always cares for themselves and manipulates. And you ask the, the dangers are, you know, a psychopath will manipulate, a psychopath will trick, a psychopath will harm, a psychopath will do all that to get its way. Mm-hmm. And so in the first book and film, we kind of play out that idea. And as you say, it's true, some corporations are better than others. <laughs> but all publicly traded corporations are constituted by the same legal mechanism. And one of the points I wanted to make in that first film and book was they're all psychopaths for that reason. Some of them may be nicer or better or not as harmful or whatever, but it's not about their behavior. It's about their very DNA. It's about how they're legally constituted. Mm -hmm. And so where I take that with the second book and film is to say, you know, around 2005, corporations started saying, we know we've been bad in the past. We saw the people protesting us. We saw films like my first film. You know, we we got the message. So we're going to be good now. We're going to be sustainable. We're going to be socially responsible. We're going to be woke, as you put it in the introduction, and everything's fine. And what I argue in the second book and film, the recent one, is that actually nothing ever changed in terms of that underlying legal dynamic. Um, And so what this new veneer is, is like the psychopath finding charm, you know, that they find that if they're more charming, they can be more effective at being psychopathic. And so that's the basic idea I play out in this new project. So a a psychopath who also happens to be a a narcissist and is really good at manipulating and getting what he or she or it wants. Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And, 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 And it's not like, 
So here's the thing. I mean, some of my best friends are CEOs, are uh -huh. corporate executives. I, I play hockey. I, I coach with, uh, with you know, the head of a major mining company in Vancouver. We go out for beers. Like I, in all of my work, I'm really careful to say this isn't a problem with the human beings who work for, who run, even who lead corporations. I think most of them are trying to do the best they can. But when you talk to them a little bit more than just about the weather, they will say, you know, we're constrained. Like, like, uh, you know, I have a friend who's like, I'm, I'm a super environmentalist. Like, I, I don't like all this stuff that's happening. But as an executive in a company, I can only go so far because ultimately we end up pushing against that institutional imperative that we have to serve our shareholders first. We can't right. sacrifice them. And so I do believe some truly great people are behind a lot of this new rhetoric about corporate wokeness and mm -hmm. that they're not insincere. But what we forget when we see all the nice sort of fluff is that as institutions, corporations can't do those things, at least not genuinely and not fully. Yeah, yeah. And it, it it feels really insincere when you see some of the, it almost feels like propaganda from the corporations when they are espousing these beliefs. When you look at their practices, you know, um, you know, which sweatshops they're manufacturing their things or what, what, what environmental aspects of South America are they destroying? I mean, it's, it's just, it's kind of shocking sometimes to see this, this A, B comparison. And I fear that there are people who buy into it. So it's, it's almost like, how do we deal with the, it's almost like there's this, this, there's this narrative getting created that is helping to, to encourage cognitive dissonance. Like, oh no, they're, they're good corporations. They, they, they can't do these things because these are the messages that I'm seeing, you know, advertised on social media or advertised on TV. Um, how do you wake people up to the truth when certain things are getting stated that aren't really um, the true underlying values of the corporation? I think, you know, Cognitive dissonance is absolutely the right concept here because it is the fundamental concept that all propaganda and all advertising work upon. Mm -hmm. When you watch uh, an ad for beer, and sorry, I keep bringing up beer, but I'm Canadian and I play <laughs> hockey. so <laughs> And it's Friday, you know? <laughs> and it's Friday, that must be it. Um, so, you know, when you watch a beer ad, like you see all these people doing all these, having so much fun and, and, and in so many different ways. And it's like, wow, my life will be great if I drink that beer. And, right. and your rational self knows that that's all just hooey. I mean, you know that, you know, you're not going to end up in a hot tub in a ski chalet uh, at the top of a mountain if you drink that beer. You, you full, <laughs> fully know that. Um, but at the same time, the advertisers aren't working on your rational side. They're working on your emotional side. And somehow or another, that image, even though your rational side says that's all untrue, it's still having an impact on you and it's still getting you to buy that beer. Otherwise, corporations wouldn't spend all that money to you know, put those ads on. It's really the, very much the same thing with the social responsibility. You walk into the store, you know, you see the sign that says this store is good and we're helping people in Guatemala and we're okay. reducing our waste and we're doing all that. And and it makes you feel good about the company. You know, rationally, that they're up to all kinds of no good in the world and, and that those commitments right. are shallow, but it still has the same effect as the beer ad. So I, I think, though, that we really have to ask where where does the harm lie there? So. One thing that people will say is, well, look, companies are doing a little bit better than they used to do. It's not all just words and empty promises. When they right. say they're being more sustainable, you can actually see evidence that they are in some ways, and, and, and that's good. Um, and consumers are 
uh, encouraged to be a bit more responsible because, you know, we'll support this company rather than that company because they seem to have better programs. And it yeah. all seems okay. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of harm. The argument I make in the book and film is that the harm is actually happening at several levels up from just us individual consumers in a store or buying a product or whatever. The harm is that what corporations are doing with this new commitment to being good is they're saying to us as citizens and they're saying to governments, we don't really need you anymore. We don't need democratic governments anymore. We don't need you to regulate us because we're good now. Why, why do you need to regulate somebody who's good? You, we're going to do even better than what you tell us to do. Um, and we, by the way, since we're good now, let us run your schools. Let us run your water systems. Let us privatize everything because we're good now. In fact, we're better than governments. We can get things done. And as you can see, they don't. And, you know, since we're running schools and water systems, well, we really don't. We really shouldn't be asked to pay taxes anymore because uh, we don't really need public services anymore because everything can be run privately. So the, the argument I make in the book and film is that this logic of goodness isn't just kind of marketing fluff, but it's mm -hmm. actually having a profound impact on how we understand democracy and its relationship to the economy and corporations. Mm -hmm. And the profound impact is that it's substantially weakening democracy, it's weakening our social infrastructures, and mm -hmm. it's leaving us at the mercy of undemocratic institutions, sometimes anti-democratic institutions, mm -hmm. whose only goal is to make profit, not to serve us. And as bad as governments can be, and they can be, at least institutionally, their job is to serve us. And so the solution isn't to go over to the corporate side, it's to make our governments truly work properly and mm -hmm. truly work democratically. I mean, that's my central argument. But that idea of the good corporation is, is, uh, has been very powerful. Yeah, it, it seems like we're in a bit of a conundrum. Um, there are so many ways in which this dysfunction is wreaking havoc. And I think about over the last year, year and a half, how there was already this huge disparity between the haves and the have-nots. And through the pandemic and, and the lockdowns, it, it, like it, that gap widened. Um, and on some level, the corporations are still serving you know, the, their investors, but their investors don't represent the masses. Mm. How do we get ourselves out of this when we have this huge, huge gap that is only widening? Um, yeah. And it seems like even if we got the government involved more in terms of, you know, making sure that the, the corporations were looking out for some of these social interests, we're at this place now of great imbalance. What do you suggest? Well, you know, I, it's, it's very complicated. It's especially complicated in a nation like the United States that's as, and I say this as a U.S. citizen, I live in Canada, but I'm a, I'm a dual citizen. I grew up in East Lansing, Michigan. Um, it, it's a, um, you know, it's a huge country and it, is a country that's based on a constitutional commitment to freedom, to equality, to democracy. Mm -hmm. So you can't have the kind of approach you had, for example, in communist China of just saying everybody has to do this and and then right. that's that. Um, and and you know, I mean, God bless us. We we respect pluralism. We respect freedom. We respect all those things. And so, how do you so how do you respect all of that and at the same time? Um, come up with some kind of a balance among all of these competing interests. And, mm -hmm. you know, and especially when you throw into the, the thing, climate change and the environmental crises we're facing, right. uh, in addition to inequality and all of that, how do you deal with that? And I guess, you know, the, the way to deal with it, and I'm looking at this as, as a lawyer, I guess, I, uh, is through public policy, through good public policy that, is informed by the right values and that's informed by good science that you know that that's obvious and it's easy to say how do you actually get that done in the film and book i 
um, the best that I felt I could do is try to suggest an understanding of democracy and of freedom that are grounded in the absolute need for social equality and social solidarity for some sense of commonality. Again, not perfect equality, but mm. some sense in which people aren't falling through the cracks. The first thing we have to do is ensure that. How do you do that? You do it in part through tax policy. You do it by ensuring you have great public education that everybody has has access to, that nobody suffers as a result of becoming ill, that you have some kind of a healthcare system that's accessible to everybody, whether that's through a public-private partnership or like Obamacare or something like that, or a public system like we have in Canada. Um, but you make sure that people's needs are met and that they therefore feel some buy-in to the society so that they will act as citizens. So you don't have these horrible partisan divisions that people feel they're pulling to some extent in the same direction, even while having, you know, different visions. But there's some fundamental commitment to where the truth lies, uh, at least some idea, because, you know, science, for example, there's there's free discourse, there's, you know, all those things, all the things that the United States was built upon, all those ideals, if you actually make them work, I think you've got a very functional society, but I think science is key, especially on the environmental uh, front. I mean, listening and, and, to and yet, you know, I, I see that the information about science is controlled based on corporate interests as Absolutely. well, and the very politicians who are supposed to be creating that policy um, to you know create a healthier society are often bought and paid for by yes. corporate interests. Yes. So. It, it, it seems like we're in this vicious cycle. And, so, um, yeah, but but so here's the thing. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like doing, uh, you know, repairs to your to your house or or like cleaning up after you haven't done anything for a while. It's like it's it, there's just a total mess and it's in every room of the house and so much work needs to be done. Um, but that shouldn't stop you from starting. In other words, you have to start somewhere. There, there are many different fronts and many different problems, but you have to start somewhere. You know, do you fix the drain first or do you like, but you have yeah. to start somewhere. Right. And, and I think that in a society like ours, with a lot of people starting somewhere in different places, you know, if you have, if, if you manage uh, to coerce your kids into helping clean up the house and you have a family of five and somebody's in this room and somebody else in that room and I'm fixing the drain and somebody else, yeah. you know, then it'll get done. And, right. and, and I actually think that that's kind of what I mean by, by the buy-in to some common endeavor. That's what we've lost. We've mm -hmm. lost that, that sense of if I'm American or if I'm Canadian, that, 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 that means something. There's a baseline at least of similarity. Yes, of course, there are differences. Mm -hmm. But we all get to go to a good public school. We all yeah. don't worry about food being on our table. We all don't worry that an illness will devastate our lives entirely. That, that right. If we have that basic commonality, you know, only good things can happen. But beyond that, I mean, I'm not a I'm not a seer, you know, I, it, yeah. I'm, I'm a pragmatist, I it's hard for me to answer that question. I think you just mm -hmm. have to start somewhere. Yeah. Okay, before we go any further, I want um, people to know how they can connect with you and tell us a little bit more about your two films. I, sure. I think that one of them is not available yet in the U.S., is that That's correct? right. Yeah, so the first film is widely available. It's called The Corporation. It came out in 2004. It's all over YouTube. And, you know, if you want to watch it, it just click it in The Corporation. Um, and the book... Um, is still widely available. Uh, it was published by Simon & Schuster back in 2004. Um, but uh, a few years ago, I uh, realized that all the issues I dealt with in that had only gotten worse and that there were all these new issues, including Donald Trump's presidency and globalization, just all kinds of things that needed to be addressed. So I thought I'd do a sequel. Uh, so I wrote a book and it's called The New Corporation. Um, how good corporations are bad for democracy, and it's available at booksellers everywhere. It's published in the United States by Penguin Random House. 
and made a film uh, based on that book, which is currently uh, available everywhere in Canada and will be available soon in the United States and Europe. Uh, it's currently playing festivals in the United States, and we also are happy to arrange community screenings. You can find out everything you need to find out about both the book and the film at Joel joelbacken.com, J-O-E-L-B-A-K-A-N.com. B-A-K-A-N. Yeah, and that'll, now, link, that'll link you to the film site, which will link you to all the different festivals in the U.S. that are showing it over the next few weeks. Mm. So you've, you've done an in-depth dive uh, into the dysfunction, into the problems, and I know that you focus on the values that we need to bring forth in creating the solutions. Are you hopeful? Absolutely. If I wasn't hopeful, I would go and uh, do something that just made me a lot of money uh, and, and not do the work that I do. I mean, you know, I'm I'm probably the least cynical person I know. Uh, mm -hmm. Pessimism isn't something I experienced. I think the only the only thing that motivates one to criticize society um, is a belief that it can be better and a belief that it will be better. Um, and if that's not hope, I don't know what is. So I, I'm very hopeful, and both the book and the film uh, end on, on very hopeful notes. It's interesting because um, I had an experience when I was in fourth grade, and my teacher was reading a section of a book. I wrote an article about it. I won't go into detail, but she was very disillusioned um, by a statement of hope in this book, and she began to cry, and she left the room. There was this hope that there would never be any, any more war and I remember seeing her disillusionment seeing her um, her sense of futility and feeling really inspired because if people care that much then it means there is hope you yeah. know if enough of us care enough that in and of itself is a very hopeful thing yeah I I agree I sign my name at the bottom of that statement <laughs> Okay, in a minute or less, do you have a final message for our viewers and listeners? I think that's it. I think um, stay hopeful, but see see hope as a reason to work and see it as a reason to work as a citizen. Think about what does it mean? You know, we, we, we think all the time about what it means to be a father or a mother or a consumer or a buyer or a worker or an employee. But how often do we think about what it means to be a citizen? So I would just say, ask yourself that question and see where that takes you. Fascinating. Joel, um, I, I love the work that you're doing and I thank you for being here today. Thank you, thank you. I know we got off to a slightly rough start, but crazy. Yeah. <laughs> here we are and that was great and I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. I'd oh, love to do it again anytime. Absolutely, and uh, the whole show started with my cat making lots of noise. You missed that part. It was just like the perfect storm that led us into a wonderful conversation. Well, and for the I good thing, for Christine, that. for him, he can go back online and watch it later. So there we go. Oh, he's in the clear. He's good. Perfect. <laughs> oh, thanks, Joel. And thanks to all our viewers and listeners. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. You all take care. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to empower yourself to step further into your vibration of change, please visit my website at christineupchurch.com where you can learn more about my insights, upcoming events, and private sessions.